Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. So, Cathy, here we are out in the uplands, uh, what would be called moorland, what we've always called the moors. Um, but in fact, we're probably on what was previously peat bog, which has now become something else. And this episode of Nature Tripping is all about peat bogs. Chapter 1. Peat Formation and Significance. We're in West Yorkshire in the South Pennines. It's a pretty cold January day and it was thick fog but we've waited long enough for it to clear. But it's still a bit windy and damp. Typical for this upland um, area, cold wet climate, ideal for peat bogs. We're sitting in front of an area which has a moss in it called sphagnum. But it's fair to say we've walked over three kilometres, at least two miles of nothing but heather to get here. To try and find one of the key plants that forms what becomes peatland, sphagnum moss. And <laughs> we have finally found some sphagnum moss. It's less than a square metre. It's a few plants in a little gully, in a wet gully. All that land that's now covered in heather was probably once covered in mosses. What we thought we'd do first is have a look at this sphagnum moss underneath us and talk a little bit about it because it's so crucial to the formation of peat. Well, what is peat? I mean, peat, peat, we're familiar with it from, like, gardening. It's this sort of dark soil that's mainly plant matter, but um, in its natural state, it's actually mainly water. So peat is a soil made of partially decomposed plant matter, all that sphagnum moss. That sphagnum moss builds up over time. The bottom layers die and the top layer keeps growing. And as the bottom layers die, they don't break down very well in these conditions we've got up here. It's very wet. Mainly because it's wet, there's also a lot less oxygen underground, and that means less microorganisms and fungi. So the sphagnum doesn't break down and disappear like other plant life does in more oxygenated conditions. It just builds up and up and up and up. And that is how you get peat. And it does it very slowly, like about one millimetre every year. If you're out on the moors and you see a big bank of peat and it's about a metre deep, that took a thousand years to accumulate. All that sphagnum plant matter that's accumulating, rather than rotting, that means its carbon stays in the peat. It doesn't get decomposed and released into the atmosphere. So peatlands, 
whether that's like areas like this, which is X, well, partly but mainly X blanket bog, but also other types of peatland like raised bogs and fenlands, where you also get this peat formation process, are great carbon stores. Great for carbon sequestration. They have been called our own rainforests, haven't they? Yeah, and do you know what? They're actually better than rainforests for storing carbon. The um, compelling statistic is that 30% of all land stored carbon is in peat, which is occupying only about 3% of the land area So is that globally. across the world? Yeah, that's yeah. globally. Okay. So it's actually peat stores twice as much carbon as all forest biomass. Wow. So there's very good reasons for trying to protect peat forming environments like peat bogs where where you still got this process of the slow build up of dead moss to form peat oh there's a grouse i mentioned earlier that we're on a blanket bog but we've also got these other types of bogs raised bogs and then we've got another type of peat environment fenland and so what's the difference between these types of well, you tend to get peaty places. Yeah, so these are, these are all peatlands. These are places where peat um, can form. Um, we've said already that sphagnum means waterlogged conditions. Um, bogs are places which receive water only from rainwater. They get their water only from rainwater. Right, okay. And Or mist or fog. Yeah, or snow. snow. Yeah, precipitation. Yeah, stuff from the sky. And they're generally higher than the surrounding land. So in the uplands... We get these blanket bogs forming on hills and, and gentle slopes. In the lowlands, um, if you've got those conditions, you go have what's called a raised bog. I've read that um, those were often like old lakes. Right. They start off as an old lake. Yeah. Yeah, but they're, then they're wet, so the peat starts forming. But then because the peat itself retains water, it can... Make a mound? Yeah, a mound of peat. Yeah. So it's self-sustaining. It retains the water it gets from the rain and sphagnum grows and grows and the peat accumulates. Yeah, and interestingly on the bogs, like if you live somewhere that's got moss in mm. the name, like Manchester, Moss Side. Yeah. Or there's chat moss as well, there's lots of places. Ashton moss. There's lots of places with moss in their name. Yeah. That was probably once a bog. A peat bog. Finally there's a third type which is fens, and they are quite different. They form in low-lying areas, depressions. They receive water from runoff and the bedrock. They've got more nutrients and a wider range of plant yeah. species, and that's more typical of Norfolk, Suffolk, right, Somerset. So historically... 30% of the United Kingdom was one of these three peaty landscapes. In other words, bog or fen. So is that because it's such a wet, cold climate? Yeah, cold and wet, yeah. And so people were living in peat, on, on that, in those peaty landscapes throughout that time. In um, fact, some of their bodies have been discovered. <laughs> yeah, so the very conditions that mean that the sphagnum doesn't rot mean that other things don't rot, like bodies yeah. or leather artefacts from Roman times. Yeah. So they're very important archaeologically. 
and it's another problem with when the peat dries out, those artefacts that haven't yet been excavated will decay. So we talked about the peat. Wow. Yeah, the ground's been quite noisy today. We talked about peat being a great carbon store, but peat bogs are also really significant for other reasons as well, aren't they? Mm. Like, because you've got these quite peculiar or specific wet acidic conditions, you get certain species that have adapted to live in those conditions and you only find them, mm. or you mainly find them, in these types of peaty areas. So the specialists? Yeah. yeah. So they can be quite special environments. Because in some ways, this wet, cold, sphagnum-dominated ecosystem isn't very diverse. There aren't a huge number of different types of species, but the ones that have evolved to live there are very specialist. They've adapted specifically to live in this type of environment. Yeah. Like insectivorous plants. I thought that was great. Like There's these little plants that... There's not a lot of nutrients. Not a lot of microbes. It's very acidic compared with other places. How are you going to survive if you're a plant? What are you going to live off? You become insectivorous. So there's these little sundew plants that eat insects. Um, they've got these little kind of... Well, kind of like tentacles. And the insects... Um, come along and get trapped in the tentacles and then the tentacles close inward and the insect gets dissolved by enzyme liquids that the plant makes. You've also got quite a few dragonflies that have adapted. So a quarter of British and Irish dragonflies are restricted to bogs. Mm. Only found in bogs? Yeah. Mm. Uh, or boggy, boggy conditions. Then mm. you've got the large heath butterfly, which needs a certain type of grass, or actually a sedge, which is called cotton grass. So that's you see that quite often in the moors, don't you? That grows alongside the sphagnum moss. Yeah, yeah. Little fluffy white blobs of cotton. Yeah, they're like um, cotton wool puffs yeah. when they flower. And how about birds, Cathy? What type of birds would you find in um, blanket bog? Well, specialists that actually like blanket bog, Dunlin and Greenshank especially like bogs. They feed on Daddy Longlegs larvae, oh. especially in Scotland. Right. How about midges? Does anything eat the midges? <laughs> Presumably the insectivorous plants are eating the midges. Right, yeah. <laughs> the other thing about bogs, why they're important, is water. Because as well as storing all that carbon they are storing a lot of water as well as simply storing the water the kind of mossy vegetation slows the flow and runoff of water that lands on the bog they help keep the water in the hills or slow the flow of water off the hills when there's extreme weather events so i read that um you know you've got the kind of green alive bit of sphagnum moss yeah at the surface. Under that you've got the dead sphagnum, so you've got these large empty cells. Those can store up to 20 times their own yeah. weight in water. And that's, that's of course like helping 
keep the environment right for the sphagnum. The sphagnum needs a wet environment all year round. That's, yeah. that's the self-sustaining nature of the of the yeah. ecosystem, isn't yeah. it? This is why water companies often have um, reservoirs up here in the moors. In fact, seventy percent of our water comes from upland areas which are dominated by peat. And we've come to an area of land today that is Yorkshire waterland. Chapter two, peatland destruction. Okay, I'm gonna park the trolley. We've just come to our local garden centre to see what um, type of peat products or compost products they're selling. Right, well there was about 50 metres of stacked sacks of compost. So it's clearly a big business, isn't it? Yeah. So what have we got here? Well, this is a whole display of peat-free compost. This is new. I'm pretty sure this hasn't been here before. We've got naturally peat-free and organic, peat-free premium. So I wonder what they're using instead of peat. This one's using wood fibre, hollow wood fibres. This one's using coir and wood fibres. Hmm, this is great. So, well, provided you get past all everything else, they have made it easy to buy a selection of peat-free. Let's have a look at some of the other okay. products and the see see what they've got in them. Mm. So here's a bag of multi-purpose compost, 70 litres, so. Mm. Traditional. Oh, look up there, it says 100% sphagnum moss peat. Right. This is for everyday use, perfect for seed sowing, bedding and containers. So let's move to another one. What's this one? Well, this is from County Tyrone in Ireland. Apart from saying what nutrients it's got in it, it doesn't say what it's made from. It is mainly peat, isn't it? Because it's got, if you feel the bag, it's spongy. Yeah. And it's a light, relatively light bag. And, well, you can see where it's coming out. Here's another one. 100% natural from County Tyrone, Ireland. Look, Joe, this one says the percentage of peat content and it's got a little bar chart and it's definitely around 90% peat content. So at least they're explicit. Here's a seed compost. Also from County Tyrone. Got a little statement, saving our world. It is important that as soon as the compost bag is empty, it should be immediately safely and environmentally discarded. Actually, so that's only about the bag. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing about peat on this. Uh, again, I'm fairly sure it is peat, but they're hiding it. It looks peaty from the picture on the front, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. So I think what this demonstrates is that it's a vast market and that it's not always easy for a customer to understand whether they're buying a peat product or not, because there isn't always explicit information on the label about what the compost is made of. No. 
Um, but the bags that we have been able to find out a little bit about, if it's a compost, it's largely peat and a lot of it seems to come from Ireland. Things so how there's this big display of peat-free compost and the ones which are peat-free advertise it boldly. Yeah. We can assume that most of the others are mainly peat. Yeah. So from the customer's point of view, unless you're buying something that says peat-free, you're probably buying something that could be 90% peat. Yeah, yeah. Back out on our local moor, we had to um, decamp the other day because it actually got quite rainy and very cold. And very foggy. Mm. So what you heard there was us investigating the use of peat in amateur gardening. This next chapter of the podcast is all about the ways in which we've destroyed our peatlands. Earlier we mentioned that 30% of the UK land area was peatland in the past, but about 80% of that has been degraded so leaving us just with peaty soils. Now, only about 10% of the UK is active bog and fen, so peatlands which could sustain sphagnum and actually continue to make peat. It was a lovely sunny day, a matter of half an hour ago, and now it's turned into Wuthering Heights. <laughs> yeah, freezing fog, wind... Um, but it's certainly got a lot colder quite quickly. Yeah. This whole experience, something that's been um, quite shocking to me, is how little sphagnum moss we've come across. Mm. Like, it's only really present in very small patches. Clumps, almost. Here and there. Yeah. The immediate moorland around us. There mm. appears to be no real active blanket bog. Mm. Some evidence remains in the names of the hills. The one just over there is called Moss Crop Hill. So that was probably covered in moss. And I wonder what they were using it for. Were they using the moss, harvesting and using the moss, or whether they were cutting peat for fuel yeah. in ancient times? Yeah. So the government were planning, hoping, through a voluntary initiative, to phase out the sale of garden peat products by 2020 to the public. And that hasn't happened so peat is actually being dug up on an industrial scale and sold to gardeners. Yeah, so about 3 billion litres of peat every year in the UK goes into our gardens. About a third of that comes from the UK, but 60%, like we found in the garden centre, comes from Ireland. Right. Also in Ireland, there's been industrial-scale mining of peat for fuel. This has been going on for centuries at a domestic level, but in the 20th century it was promoted by the government and it peaked in the 1960s when 40% of Ireland's electricity was obtained from burning peat. Yeah. Um, fortunately, their, their government is um, reducing and stopping that now. Mm. That was an amazing way of releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and destroying 
that all that stored carbon. And once it's been mined, those peat bogs couldn't produce peat again. Yeah. Okay, so there's been extraction for compost products and there's been extraction for burning. But what else has happened to our peatlands? So one of the main ways in which peatlands have been degraded and destroyed over the centuries is drainage for agricultural land um, in the name of improvement. And certainly in lowland peatland areas, drainage led to quite fertile soils for growing crops. Upland areas have been drained for improvement of grazing lands. Yeah, and also for conversion into heather moor. Yeah, because heather grows where peat bogs have dried out. I mean, at one time there probably was a patchwork of boggy areas with sphagnum and then heather and other plant species growing on the drier bits. But as soon as the peat has been drained by digging ditches, heather can grow much more readily on the drier areas. Yeah. And this has been done to promote habitats for grouse shooting extensively in in this area. We're not on the same moor that we were on a couple of days ago. We've kind of crossed the border into Lancashire. And we're standing next to a bank of peat. Exposed peat. Yeah. So uh, it's about a metre deep. There's some heather growing on the top. But underneath there's an expanse of dark peat. And it's all pretty dry. It's literally a black hole of horror. (laughs) And I guess the other impact in this part of the world on our upland blanket bogs and all that sphagnum moss was the Industrial Revolution. What with the massive increase in the burning of fossil fuels to power the factories, that released a lot of sulphurous and nitrous oxides, which produced kind of acid, acid in the rain. Sphagnum's a sensitive little plant, couldn't cope. So a lot of the sphagnum would have suffered in those conditions. And once you lose that green topping to the bogs, again, the sphagnum's what's keeping the water there. The bogs dry out. So we've got all these factors leading to drying out of the peat. Wildfires become more common, accidental fires, as well as deliberate burning of moorland heather for grouse moor management. And another way in which the peatlands are damaged is pine forests. I mean, we can see pine plantations here on the moors over the valley, and vast areas of Scotland are covered in pine plantations.
Well, where are we, Joe? Where are we? Where Good the question. hell are we? I mean, we drove south of Glasgow, but I'm not quite sure. Where it's somewhere near Nidalbeatty, maybe. Dumfries? <laughs> Galloway. <laughs> we're, we're in Galloway. So we're in Dumfries and Galloway, Galloway side of Dumfries and Galloway, and we're in a forest. So we've come to Scotland to meet Kerry, Kerry Morrison. Kerry, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, Joe. My name's Kerry. I'm an environmental artist and I live just on the edge of the forest that we're in right now. So this is a plantation forest and it's predominantly Sitka spruce. So Sitka spruce is a fast-growing timber um, and after about 30 or 40 years it's felled and then goes into various sort of timber-related products. Yeah. Okay, and if we look across to our right, we can see a drainage ditch and then mm. a wall of peat yes and the forest on top that's right i might actually go into the drainage ditch is that okay excellent it yeah. might rustle a little yeah. bit and i might it's going to it might be slippy but it's worth kind of going into it so we're stood on a track at the moment that goes through the forest so this is how the timber when it's extracted will be sort of taken in and out so we're on a, on a hardcore track i'm going to be stepping on a bit of moss some of which is sphagnum and then i'm in well it's a drainage ditch so the ditch is here to take the water or to help take the water away from the soil uh, that the trees are growing in and the soil is peat and what's interesting about being in this drainage ditch because it's been dug you can actually see the bank of peat that the trees are actually so you can see the peat that the trees are planted in and where I'm stood this peat face is about a meter deep and it's dark um, and the edges it's going to be slightly um well it's uh it's not in good condition because it's close to the, the air's got to it and and peat is actually an anaerobic organic soil so it doesn't really want the air in it and the plantation these these pine trees were planted over a big area right on top of the yeah. peat yeah that would appear to be the case I don't know the history, but just looking at what we can see, we can see the drainage ditch, we can see the peat face, and we can see the trees. So, and we can see the indicator species for, for peat. So it suggests that this was a peat bog. It's stunted. It, it, it can't form more peat because it hasn't got the vegetation on top that peat is made from. Sure, yeah. So it's no longer a bog. It's no longer it's a bog. It's been dried out by the drainage ditches and, and the, trees the trees taking water yeah. out. yeah. Then, it creates dilemmas because the, you know people want to see more trees planted. We know that trees sequestrate carbon from uh, from the atmosphere, so we kind of want trees. But really, we shouldn't be wanting trees on peat. We should be preserving the peat. It's um, that thing of the right tree in the right place. The right isn't tree it? in the right place. And of course, the other issue with the tree planting is we do need timber. We are a society that uses timber, whether it's in biomass for heating or toilet paper or pallets or building. We use timber and timber's a renewable resource. So there's quite a few challenges like, you know, sort of do we leave the ground as peaty bog? Do we grow trees on it? So, you know, there's, it's, it's not kind of clear cut mm. in a way. And I guess at the time that this forest was planted, how old's this forest? It, 20, 30, 30 40, 40 years? More, more, because it will be in at least its second rotation now. Um, so I guess climate change and the need to store carbon and the ways we might do that and mitigating against 
climate change. It wouldn't have been at the top of the Forestry Commission's agenda then, would it? It wouldn't have been a dilemma. No. No, and things have changed. So currently with legislation, you wouldn't be permitted to plant trees in this particular location because we can see that it's a metre deep. Mm. Do you mean if they were starting from scratch if now? If they were starting from scratch yeah. now, if these trees had never been here and they were yeah. coming to this and looking at the land, they would have to do a peat survey. And then this area that we're stood in would be set aside because it's peat bog, because it's more than 50 centimetres deep. So this wouldn't be permitted in the current climate. We're on a bog. We're standing here, it's, you can see water pretty quickly. Yeah. It's pretty wet. And there's these great clumps of bright green sphagnum moss. Yeah. Yeah, so we're actually... You can, can you hear it? Is that picking up? Yeah. The ground's shaking. Is it? Then if then the ground is, is shaking, we're definitely on peat. So if I do that... Can you feel it well, yeah, Bob? Yeah. We're yeah. in a bog that We're could definitely be on peat. producing peat as well, though, couldn't it? Yes, it yes, yes. It's it capable of producing yes, peat. Most it's waterlogged. Is. It's got sphagnum. Yes, yes, it's got, yes, and, uh, and it's definitely a bog, and it's definitely... Now, we can't see any peat. We can just see the plants on the top. But if we dug down and got through all that water and stuck our hands down a metre or two... Just not even a metre or two. Just half the, a meter. Probably that much, probably the, 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 as much as your hand, but if you can get through it. Oh, you've got some there, look. Yeah. Very brown and a lot wetter, and that's still yeah. half vegetation, so yeah. that's yeah. early peat. So that feels completely different from the stuff before. This feels like um, almost like squishing, well, squishing wet loo rope. <laughs> 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 it's not, it doesn't feel like squishing dry soil. It's, it's really yeah, yeah. puffy. Yeah, yeah, you've definitely got some you, peat in your Like hand. blotting paper, you could squish it flat yeah. like blotting paper. Yeah, I'm glad we're down on it because I've not been on this. <laughs> I was just, because there's big, there's big danger signs yeah. here. I can see one just through the willow. Danger. Um, and it's, you know, I've not walked down here because I've always been a bit nervous that I might disappear. Yeah. Because I can, you know, from a distance I knew it was wet yeah. because of the indicated plant species on it. And we've all watched Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> <laughs> People die in bogs, you know, yeah, they it's do true. Um, so, yeah, so I've not been on my own, but I felt brave enough because there's three of us yeah. and, and a dog. So I thought, you know, if anything happens to one of us, there's enough pull force. <laughs> but it's great to be on it because I had no idea that it would be as squelchy and, and squidgy as this. And I didn't know it was Pete, but now I'm here on it. I'm confident that we are on a peat bog, which is super exciting. <laughs> Chapter three, restoration of the peat bogs. Back on the local moor. All is not lost. A lot of it's lost. <laughs> a lot of peat has been lost. Yes, but I guess it's about keeping the stuff that is in the ground still in the ground because it's a carbon store, but also regenerating some of these peat lands so they become active peat-forming environments again. We get that sphagnum back. Yeah, so it's fair to say that since about 2009, the governments in the UK have all recognised the importance of peat restoration 
and policies are gradually moving in, in that direction. For instance, there's a 2018 UK peatland strategy and uh, at COP26 there was actually a peatland pavilion. Um, and the main thing this involves is re-wetting the peatlands. And that means things like blocking these drainage gullies that have formed. Gullies are called, sometimes called grips, so you keep the water backed up on the moors for a bit longer. Also reprofiling, like this slope, this, I think it's called a hag, this wall of peat that we're on at the moment. The steeper that is, the harder it is for revegetation. You need to revegetate it to stop this peat running off or blowing away. So there's been reprofiling of these slopes to make them shallower so that they can revegetate. Mm. And actually planting of plugs of sphagnum yeah. plants. Because if you actually manage to re-wet the peat and raise the water table so the land is waterlogged again and, and there is sphagnum, it can all regrow within five to ten years. Wow. So if you look in um, DEFRA's England peat action plan, then they talk about the economics of peatland restoration and they say, well, it's going to be really expensive, but the economic benefits do exceed the costs. So if you wanted to restore all the UK peatlands that we've got to a near natural condition, it would cost something like eight and a half to 21 billion pounds but if you look at the carbon benefits of doing that the carbon benefits are costed at 109 billion pounds so you've outweighed the costs by five to ten times so it's a bit of a no-brainer another good reason for restoring the peatlands is biodiversity isn't it because at the moment these moors are good for grouse, meadow pipits, heather. Whereas if they were restored and rewetted and the sphagnum took over once again um, and you had a kind of mixture of um, vegetations, you'd probably have a wider range of species and including the specialist ones yeah. you mentioned before. Yeah. Both days we've been recording the podcast, we've actually been on more land owned by water companies. Yeah, and uh, for the water companies, the proper management of this peatland is really important because water running off into the reservoirs that's then used for drinking water supplies on a peatland where you've got the peat in poor condition. Yeah. You get a lot of organic matter running off in the water. The water arriving in the reservoirs is brown. Mm. That discoloration needs to be removed before it gets to people's taps. And that's costly. That's costly treatment, carbon intensive treatment. And what the water companies have realised is it's much better to try and stop that discoloration, that peat, 
getting in in the first place. Mm. And that requires a kind of catchment-based approach, a catchment-based solution, rather than sticking in more treatment downstream. I think all these water companies who have land in these upland areas have been trying to work with the local stakeholders, like the people they lease the land to, the grouse estates, the farmers, also the conservationists, to try and work out the best way to manage the land. And I think there's agreement that returning it or restoring at least part of it to active upland blanket bog mm. is the best thing to do. Yeah. And they've been doing things like um, working with groups like Moors for the Future to put in these mitigation measures that we've been talking about. So the sphagnum plugs, the reprofiling of the steep slopes, the blocking of the drainage channels, spreading of plant seeds. And using heather brush to protect yeah. exposed peat. Yeah. Using coir to block gullies and ditches. Yeah. So for people living in northern Britain, many of us are living in areas that used to be active peat bog, whether that's in the upland areas or in the lowland areas. And there's an increasing amount of work being done with wildlife groups and with artists and scientists to connect people with their local peatland. And Kerry's been very involved with this work. She's now going to tell us about some of the activity that she's been undertaking in the Lancashire area around Pendle Hill. So there's a lot of peat restoration work happening across the country, uh, obviously mainly in the north of England. Um, and one big peat restoration project is happening throughout the area of the Forest of Boland. And one particular area within that is Pendle Hill. I kind of worked with the Forest of Boland as they were putting in an application to, for the peat restoration. Um, and one of the things they wanted was somebody to communicate the value of peat to nearby communities but also to kind of highlight the work that was happening on top of Pendle Hill so that people could, because they would see landscape changes as the peatland escape was being restored. So they wanted people to understand what was happening and why it was happening. And they didn't want a scientist, they wanted an artist. They wanted an artist, yeah. Excellent. And they wanted an artist because, I mean, I was working with this fantastic peat ecologist and she's great, you know, she's just amazing. I think you've met her, Sarah Robinson. Mm -hmm. She just wanted sort of simpler ways that were not putting the science at the front, but other ways to get people engaged in the landscape. So, you know, I had a relationship anyway with the Forest of Boland. So I was asked to work with them on that project. And what did you do? How can we communicate stuff? There's many ways of communicating, but one thing I do know is food is a great... <laughs> communication is that food brings us together food is something that we can share conversations over and sure. laughs over so I thought it'd be really really nice to create a foodie product um, and came up with this idea of a pendle peat pie yeah. um, and then worked with a, a local cook um, Andrew um, and he, he came up with a number of ideas and we had a tasting and we went for this one particular pie which tells the story of the restoration so it's a pie with a story because the different elements of the pie as I understand represent different parts of 
the peaty That's environment. Right. Peat is really dark and it's damp. Yeah. So we wanted something in the pie that was dark and damp. Um, and going back to the different communities, pie is quite, it's quite a Lancashire thing. You yeah. know, pies and Lancashire go together really well. But with the Asian community, we wanted to have a dal. So we, we, we opted for like a brown dal. So that's the peat. That's basically the peat. And then as part of the restoration process, what they've done on Pendle Hill is they've used these giant coir logs. So coir is like the outside of a coconut. And they've, so they've, they're put into the landscape to dam up. So where we've got this drainage ditch here, they would be damming that up yeah. to re-wet the landscape. Yeah. Um, and that holds back the water flow and then the peat that's in that water flow butts up against it and eventually over time the coir logs disappear. So to represent the coir logs in the pie, Andrew, Andrew Dean, uh, put chips in it. And again, that's a twist on culinary, uh, Lancashire culinary things. So you've got chips and curry. So curry and chips as the base of your pie. And then obviously on top of that, as we were saying earlier, for peat to form, you need a particular blanket of vegetation. So the mosses and, and cotton grasses. So we can't eat moss, um, but we can eat spinach. So... <laughs> Uh, Andrew put like a layer of cream spinach on top of that. And that represents the, the regrowth, the new growth, the regenerating and the, and the, the continuation of the, of the peat. And then there's a pie crust on it because without a pie crust, it wouldn't be a pie. And without be, it being a pie, we wouldn't have a, a Lancashire traditional kind of Lancashire dish and we wouldn't have the alliteration. So that's the pie. Yeah. And the story of the pie, well, the, the story that the pie tells. Um, and it's tasty. Yeah, so, I can attest to that. It's tasty. I've had at least a couple of portions. <laughs> it's also vegan. We've made it as a vegan pie. Is there somewhere people could get the recipe? Yeah, for they, peat can, pie? they can. They can because it's uh, it was a commission. It was a joint commission with the uh, In Situ, which is an arts organisation in Pendle, um, and the recipe is on their website. And okay. I think it's also on the Pendle Hill Landscape Partnership website, so okay. you can get that. And there's also um, a restaurant in Pendle that's serving it, which is called Hamish's. Um, and so where that restaurant is, I've forgotten the name, Blacko, I think. Um, and you can see Pendle Hill from there. Excellent. The whole story of peat kind of can come out while whilst they're eating the peat pie. Yeah, yeah. Kind I mean, initiates people thinking about peat. Yeah. What is peat? What is peat? Why might? Why yeah. is it so important? Yeah. And that's another thing we kind of learned. It's like so working again with Sarah. I was making some bags for part of another project to do with the reseeding on the top of Pendle Hill, um, and the bags were given out at the bottom of the hill with seeds in it. But I made the bags at different locations around the hill to go and have like random conversations with people. And on one of these days, I was joined by a woman from the Women's Institute. Um, it happened to be from the Women's Institute, I should say. And she sat and she sewed some bags with me and we were chatting about Pete because that was the whole purpose of me being out there. Um, and she said, well, could you come and give a talk to the Women's Institute about Pete? And I said, yeah, not a problem. Anyway, come back up to Scotland one thing after another. I couldn't get down there. It just so happened I couldn't get down there on the day of the talk. So I phoned Sarah and asked if she could go. She went. They said that they had no idea that Pete that they bought at the garden centre was actually a an organic product from the landscape. A natural product. A natural product. The, the, the well, they knew, yeah, they knew it was kind of natural, but they didn't realise what it was and its importance. Mm. And they were outraged that they kind of felt like they were duped, that, you know, no one, why hadn't anyone told them? Because they, they wouldn't knowingly buy it. Yeah. But unknowingly, yeah. they were. So they, their response was like, right, we're going to go off down to B&Q. And, and, and protest. 
calls for action. This is Deborah's Minister for the Environment, George Eustace, in, in the England Peat Action Plan. Peatlands and the habitats they support should be nurtured, not mined. So, one of the most important things people can do is not buy peat-based composts from garden centres. Absolutely. We've discovered it's quite hard to tell <laughs> whether a product has got peat in it yes, or not. It, but yeah, if it's a compost, basically, unless it says it's peat-free, it's probably got peat in it. Yeah. And um, support any local organisations that are trying to restore the peatlands. Yeah. What else? Ask your garden centre to start stocking peat-free compost if it's not already, or even more radically, stop stocking peat compost. Um, and if you're going to a climate change march, then we heard a great chant at COP26 from a group that were there called Repeat. They're good, actually. Look them up online. Repeat. Uh, and it went, boggy, boggy, boggy. Oi, oi, oi. Boggy. Oi. Boggy. Oi. Boggy, boggy, boggy. Oi, oi, oi. Let's keep peat in the ground. Leave our peat in peace. you want to go and explore the bogs or the fens around you then there's a really good book that's recently been published called The Peatlands of Britain and Ireland A Traveller's Guide and that's by Clifton Bain as well as identifying where some of these bogs and fens are it's also got loads of really interesting information on the history of peat and peatland habitats.